snowplow parenting is essentially like helicopter parenting on steroids, right? Yeah. So these parents, they plow any and all obstacles out of their kid's way. So a good example of this would be the, this is like the extreme example, would be the college admission scandal where parents were just basically paying for their kids to get into to school, right? These hard, hard to get into schools. So the problem with this sort of overprotective parenting where we're making sure our kids are super safe at all times and, you know, don't have any challenges, like that seems good and all, right? But it actually has like long-term consequences because it's, be, it's from challenges and failing that kids actually learn and they pick up resilience. So the generations that were born after 1990 have the highest rates of mental health problems among young people ever. And the reason for this, they think, is because that's when helicopter parenting started. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes, and today's guest is Michael Easter. Michael is a leading voice on how humans can integrate modern science and evolutionary wisdom for improved health, meaning, and performance in life and at work. He travels the globe to embed himself with brilliant thinkers and people living at the extremes. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Comfort Crisis, which has been adopted by Major League Baseball teams, top-ranked NCAA Division I football programs, top-tier universities and law programs, major corporations, tier one military units, and more. Michael's work has appeared in over 60 countries. It's been endorsed by directors of the CIA and Navy SEALs, gold medal-winning Olympians, leading physicians, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, Buddhist and environmental leaders, and more. While Michael has taken a variety of intense life-changing trips, including a 30-day adventure to the Arctic of Alaska, where temperatures reach negative 20 degrees below zero, he states that out of all the extreme endeavors that he has done, getting sober was the hardest. Michael is a contributing editor at Men's Health, he's a columnist at Outside Magazine, and is a journalism professor at UNLV. In this episode, Michael shares his sobriety journey, including what led him down the path of addiction, why he got sober and how he learned to deal with the discomforts of early recovery. We chat about why people today are scared to get uncomfortable, as well as certain stressors that are actually beneficial for us that we have done away with. Michael reveals daily things that anyone can do to push themselves outside of their comfort zone, and why you don't need a cold plunge or a sauna to practice discomfort. Our combo also gets into the dangers of certain current parenting styles and how they can be detrimental to the health of their children. We also get into his experience surviving 30 days in the Arctic and what inspired him to keep going when things got hard and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Michael Easter to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to, to chatting with you now for, for quite some time. I've heard you on a number of podcasts. I've read your book. I think you not only have a great story, but you have a great message and it's this, this notion of really like inspiring people to, to embrace discomfort, to embrace hard times, to embrace pain, to be able to turn that into strength, to be able to turn that into resilience and, and ultimately become a better version of themselves. And that's really what the Adversity Advantage podcast 
that's like the foundation of it is using hard times to become a better person. There's so many parallels in what we both do as far as our passion for fitness, our passion for wanting to help other people. We, we also have this common theme of, of recovery. So I think that's like a good place for us to start because recovery is hard. It's not easy. It can be very painful. And my, I guess what I want to know with everything you're doing now with helping people embrace discomfort, how did like the early stages of recovery and sobriety for you, like how were you able to embrace the discomfort of that? And then how did those times like help shape you into becoming this person that's that really just is able to embrace any discomfort that you face today? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, first of all, thanks for reading the book and having me on. I'm super psyched to be chatting and it definitely seems like we align on a lot of things. So it's always cool to talk to someone who's kind of like-minded. I was in South Carolina maybe a couple of weeks ago and we were out on this lake, me and like these two other dudes. And for whatever reason, we just start having deep conversations, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the guys, one of the guys was like, you know, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? And like, and I think he's thinking, given my background working at men's health and you know, having read my book that I'm going to be like, oh, it was when I was in Alaska for like 30 days, you know? He's like, no, man, it's getting sober. So, you know, I'm the type of person that my favorite drink is and always will be the next one. <laughs> so when I have one drink, I'm going to have a lot more. <laughs> and I don't even know how many I'm going to have more. And I think the reason that, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons why people drink like that. They're genetic, they're, you know, environmental, they're, there's all kinds of stuff. And frankly, I'm, I don't necessarily need to know all the reasons, but basically I think that, you know, drinking made me more comfortable with the world, made me a lot more comfortable with myself. I remember the first time I ever had a drink, I was like, you know, one of those kids, it's kind of like, just, I don't know if I was socially awkward, but I felt socially awkward. Right. Right. And that just like, and I always felt like I always had a ton, a ton of energy, like so much energy. First time I took a drink, like I could never sit down as a kid. First time I took a drink, it was like, oh, all of a sudden I could like relax and I was comfortable. Right. So I continued to drink because that it like it helped for a long time. Then we feel better. But when you, when you start drinking in a way that like I described before, eventually that just completely stops working. Not only does it stop working, but it starts causing all of your problems, right? But you become reliant on it. At least I did. And you don't really know how to stop. And I, I tried to stop drinking so many different times because, you know, like I said, all my problems were caused by drinking. And it was just kind of like, I was a mess, you know, emotionally, physically, psychologically. But for whatever reason, one morning, despite having tried to stop a ton of times, like I could just very clearly see that if I were to keep this uh, behavior up, I was, I was going to die early. You know, I didn't know if I was going to die at like 35. I was 28 at the time. I didn't know if I'd die at 35 or 55 or 75. I just knew it was going to end me early, you know, just because my behavior when I would drink was just crazy. And so I knew that like, I could see, I could take that path which was kind of comfortable. Like I knew it was there or it could take this like much harder, more challenging path where I didn't know where that would lead if I were to get sober and how hard it would be. But I was like, okay, I'm going to try it, you know? And that it was not easy at first, right? Cause you have to like totally like rewire everything in your life from your thought patterns, from behavior patterns. And like, at least for me, I, I was like, 
so unbelievably afraid of all these random things like, you know, well, what happens if I'm at a party? What do you do at a party? What do you do on the weekends? Like, what do people do on the weekends if they don't drink? You know, it's just like all these things. And, you know, physically it's hard because your body's kind of like getting rid of all this stuff. But I think mentally it's the hardest because you're just having to totally re, I mean, you're having to figure out why did, you know, why did I drink in the first place? Trying to work through some of that. You're trying to figure out how do I live this new life, all this stuff. But, you know, by going through that, every single thing in my life improved. And I don't mean like, yeah, things got better. I mean, like things across the board got better. I had more money. Turns out your bank accounts has more money in it when you don't go out on Saturday and Saturday night and just buy everyone drinks at the bar, you know? Right. Physically, I was a lot better off, you know? I like, I lost weight. My face was less puffy. Mentally, I was a lot just like, just better, you know? I still had a lot of those like sort of underlying, like a little bit uncomfortable, but like I could work through it. Like I didn't have to take the easy path, which was just to take a drink. You know, I started to work through some of that stuff and just everything got better. So I think that sort of cued me into this idea that like, you know, as humans, we tend to do the thing that's going to be most comfortable at any given moment. It's going to be easiest, but that is often not the thing that is most going to serve us and improve us, especially for the long term. Right. So that kind of gave me that insight, I would say. It's in, it's interesting that like today, you know, the, a major part of your brand is helping people get more uncomfortable and stop being so comfortable in their lives. And that the reason your life started to fall apart years ago was because of your inability to become comfortable in your own skin with how you, how you actually felt. So do you think like based on your research, just your observation, just knowing people in recovery, that the reason a lot of people end up relapsing or going back to that old lifestyle is because of their inability to embrace the, the discomforts that come with recovery and having to, you know, own your feelings and rewire your thoughts and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think that's probably like a, an overarching thing. And that I, I would assume that manifests itself in a lot of different ways that could lead us, lead someone to, you know, go back out, whether it's like you, you know, you need help and probably need to talk to someone, but you just like, don't want to have that conversation because it's super awkward, you know, like yeah. you, you aren't willing to put yourself out there. And like, you know, you hear the word, you know, be vulnerable used by every single person alive today, but, it, but it's true. Right. <laughs> it's true. You know, like I remember for me, I was talking to a guy who was, who was sober and he had, he'd been sober for a long time and he got sober about the same age that, that I got sober at. And this was very early on. And I asked him, I'm like, okay, so like, what if I'm at a party and someone asks me, do you want a drink? He just goes, you could say, no, thanks. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. yeah. Oh, like that had never occurred to me. <laughs> and I think a lot of it is like thinking, I think we're all programmed to think that like the world revolves around us. I remember I had this other time where like, I was at this like business dinner thing in Utah, like this ski resort, it's like this nice dinner. And I had only been sober for like three months. And 
you know, the waiter comes and everyone goes around the table and is ordering drinks. And of course, I'm the last one in this. So the whole time I'm getting worked up, like, oh my God, I'm going to not order, I'm going to order water. And everyone's going to look at me and be like, why are you drinking? And I'm going to have to explain myself and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm just going through this whole scenario. What's going to happen? And the world's going to end. So the guy gets to me and he's like, you know, what well, we have to drink, sir? I'm like, I'll have a water. You know what happened? You got your water. No one yeah. cares. Yeah. No one cares about me. Like, but here I am. I think like everyone I think is programmed to think like the world revolves around you. Everyone is so focused on you. It's not true. Yeah. And I think on, I think, and I think on top of that, and another big thing to your point is we're always thinking about like, what's the the next thing they're going to say to us in response to that. We're always worried about like what somebody else is going to say instead of being like, well, what do I actually want for my life? Like, does, what do I actually like need to do right now to make my life better? We're always concerned with if we say, oh, I don't want to drink. I just want water. We're worried that that person's going to say, oh, like you're a wuss or I can't yeah. believe you're doing that or what happened to you instead of being like, no, I'm, this is just what I'm doing. Like, and, right. and I'm okay with, you know, the, these steps that I'm taking to, to make my life better. And I think with, with, so with all that said, you know, an overarching message in your book, an overarching message in what you speak about now is this, this notion that as humans, we're pretty much in the place where we're at with the mental health struggles, with obesity, with our health, because of our inability to, to face discomfort, to actually take a step and get to the gym and, and try, try to change ourselves to, you know, put ourselves in situations that were uh, uncomfortable for person to help us with our personal growth. And I go on and on with examples, but I guess like in your understanding, like, like, why are we here? Like what's happened? Like why now are we so afraid to to embrace uncomfortable situations? Ah, super simple. It's that, you know, for 2.5 million years of human evolution, doing the the most comfortable thing is what kept us alive and well. Because we evolved in these environments that were that were harsh, that were challenging, that where there wasn't enough food, where you didn't ever want to move too much because you just burn energy that you needed to survive. Right. It's like, we're programmed to overeat. This is why, this is why we're obese today. Right. It's like, if you had enough food, you would eat as much of it as possible. So you could store it as fat. You didn't want to move any more than you needed to, because you were just burning precious energy. You wanted to avoid all risk. Right. But the thing is, is that risk in the past, it was like actually risky. Actually, we, we would do things that were actually risky to our lives. Well, today, the world is unbelievably safe, but we still have these drives to like, don't take any risk. And that can often hold us back in things like business and relationships and stuff like that on and on and on. Right. And you just extrapolate this, like the world has become so much more comfortable in every single way. We still have these drives telling us do the most comfortable thing. So this is working against us. It's essentially what nerdy anthropologists would call an evolutionary mismatch, where these traits that we evolved over time in one environment, they are now backfiring in this environment we have now. So you think of something like, you know, you talk about mental health. Well, I think a lot of, I'm definitely not saying every single mental health problem is caused by this, but I think a lot of your, you know, run of the mill garden variety mental health problems that we see skyrocketing today are caused by the fact that people are never challenged and therefore they have no perspective on what is actually like a problem. You know, it's like, if you've never had any challenge or gone through anything hard, which I think especially young people today haven't because of shifts in parenting, 
Well, then of course, any little thing that comes along your path is going to be scary and give you some, some issues, right? So if you look at research on, on mental health and challenges, you look at people who have had a ton of challenges thrown with that traumas, tragedies, that kind of stuff. They don't have great mental health. At the same time, people who have had nothing bad happen to them, no challenges, they have equally bad mental health. It's these people in sort of the middle that have had enough things thrown at them that they've learned from them, that they've grown from them, that it's given them some perspective. They're the most able to work through life and get through it and, and have a perspective that gives them better mental health. I mean, I just think of like, you know, think of what, think of, I mean, first world problems are a thing in the U S now, right? Like yeah. our problems are just like the human brain is programmed to, to find problems. Cause that used to keep us alive in the past. Right. If you were always thinking like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this to survive. Like I got to solve this problem. I got to solve this problem. So we're programmed to look for problems, but now our problems are like, oh, I'm going to be late to my yoga class. Or like, oh, my neighbor makes more money than me. This makes us miserable because we're still like thinking these are actual problems, right? We don't have the perspective to be like, now life is awesome right now. <laughs> you know, like these are just not big issues in the grand scheme of my life, but we treat things like they are big problems, you know, that aren't. Right, right. And I, I do think there's obviously the percentage of the people that, um, just flat out don't want to take risk or there are people that are just lazy and, and don't want to move or take action. But I think there's also like a majority of people that are just going through the motions and just like walking around like almost, you know, in, in the dark and they have no idea that they're just living life in, su in such a comfortable way that it's actually deteriorating their, their quality of life long-term because of their inability to improve themselves or inability to adopt a growth mindset and actually get better. So like, have you, in the people you've talked to, or maybe even in your, in your own experience, have you found any practical tips that somebody could maybe implement into their life to know if they're actually like being too comfortable with the way they live? Well, I think you brought up something good about routine. You know, as part of the book, The Comfort Crisis, I went up to Alaska for more than a month and was in the back country of the Arctic on this like long hunt. And you know, that was a, a radical shift in my lifestyle. It's like every single thing up there was hard and challenging. And I got exposed to like a lot of the same discomforts that our ancestors would have faced every single day. Right. And most people like hear that I was up there that long. And they're like, oh my God, I could never do that. It's like, yeah, you could. That's how humans lived forever. You know, you just don't think you can because we're so freaking comfortable now. And like, it seems like everything's bridged too far. But so... I told you that to basically tell you that, like, you know, humans are programmed to do what's routine. Before I decide that I'm going to go up to Alaska, like, my days are relatively the same, you know? Once I, once I decide I'm going to do that, I have to change everything in my life. I have to, like, change how I train. I have to change what I do at night. Now I have to start learning about all the, like, land patterns and weather patterns and like how animals move across the land, all this stuff. I got to like figure out all my gear. And so it's like, you know, I told you that to basically tell you that the human brain, it, it wants to default to routine. That also used to keep us alive. If we knew where our next food source was coming from, if we knew where water was and we could just rinse and repeat every single day, that helped keep us alive. But in today's day and age, we don't really have any of those issues, but we still fall into this whole routine thing. And what happens is that 
your brain sort of goes on autopilot. Instead of being sort of like present and engaged and aware of life and the world around you, you're just kind of stuck in your noggin and you're just kind of like <laughs> your head's somewhere else, but you're just doing the routine. And like, you know, you look back and it's like, I have no idea what I did the last week or two, you know? <laughs> and so like someone like, I think it was, it wasn't Carl Young. I'm forgetting. Might've been Young. He basically said that, uh, you know, life is a connection of that, which you are aware of. It's this, that's like at the end of your life, your life was what you were aware of. So if you're just like, like you're just lost in space, like you weren't really living, right? So by sort of shaking up a routine and trying to do new things, which we don't want to do because we're going to look dumb. We're going to have to learn stuff. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. We're going to have to be forced into awareness, but it's going to force us into awareness, right? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, now I'm like living. Yeah. And you brought up a really good point. And that's like this this idea of getting out of your your routine and challenging yourself and trying things new, even if they're simple. And I know I've used this, I don't know if I've talked about it as much on the podcast as I have with just people that I've just c connected with, but cold therapy for me was something I was terrified of for the longest time. And and last year, you know, Gabby, Gabby Reese, because you were on mm -hmm. her show too. I went I, I knew I had to go and, and do a pool workout with her. I had had her on my show and she invited me to come do a pool workout. And I was like, man, I better get ready. And so one of the things I did was I, I started to get in the cold because I thought that I was going to be doing hot and cold and the, the, the pool. And I was like, man, if I, the first time if I, I'm not going to be doing my first cold therapy at Gabby's house, I'm going to look like a complete imbecile if I don't at least somewhat prep for this. And my buddy's really into it. And I remember getting in his cold plunge and I lasted like 10 seconds because I was, you know, all the, the shock and the nerves and the pain, like all the stuff that most people experience when they first try. It. And I got out after 10 seconds, but I kept doing it. And eventually I got to the point where I was able to go in there for like five minutes. But my point is it's not even just the fact that I got better in the cold. It was like other areas of my life. I started to notice I was more confident in those as well. And I think you see a lot of that when you decide to say, okay, like I'm going to actually challenge myself because that's how you build self-confidence and self-esteem is, is facing your fears and overcoming things that you never thought you could do. Because I, I can promise you, if you had said to me, that I'm going to be able to do five minutes in the cold before I did it for the first time, you'd have been like, you're out. I would have said, you're out of your freaking mind. Like, do you see that a lot with yourself and others where they start to take on these challenges and then other areas of their life improves, tr improve dramatically as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like, look, someone who, someone who takes like accumulates the ability to do hard things yeah. that carries over to a lot of different domains. Right. I mean, like, I mean, even like thinking about myself, it's like, I didn't know if I could finish this 30 days in Alaska. I didn't know how hard it was going to be. It was hard as hell. And there were a ton of times where I wanted to go home. But then when I get back to Vegas, it's like, like everything's easy. Yeah. I don't complain. I, that was, that was a huge thing too, is the perspective shift, right? It's like, because we can find things to complain about in modern life, like, you know, oh, they're taking so long to bring my food out at this restaurant, right? But like, I'd spend a month up there just starving, like so hungry the entire time that it's like, everything's perfect right now. This building's warm. I'm just wait, like, the food's going to come out eventually. I'm going to be full after it, you know? Like all these things that we think of as problems nowadays, like doing hard things, I think can reset that and reframe your perspective. And in doing that, you you get some like 
I think a performance boost, but you also get some like mental clarity where you can yeah. see things a little better, you know? And I'm not saying that this like is going to fix everything. Cause I know plenty of people who like, yeah, I did a hundred mile race, but then they're, they're assholes, you know, right. like it's yeah. not going to turn you into like a, a Zen sage, but I think it can give a lot of people something that improves them a hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. And you brought up uh, something that's, that's really interesting too, that I firmly believe is that, you know, when you go on these expeditions and you go live beneath your means and you change your, your environment and you start to really look at other cultures and see how they live. And, and then you get to, get, you get to really see how good you have it. And one of those shifts for me came when I was in, when I was in jail back in 2008. I mean, I, I got to like, see that I had taken so much for granted in my life that was like, wow, like the food was actually good on the outside or people were actually good or my, the, the aquarium was cool to see without being high. Like all these things that I take it for granted, I take my freedom for granted. So many other things that when I got out, I, I honestly started to see life so much differently because I spent you know several months in there and I was, my eyes were now open. And I was like, wow, like I have really been looking at this, this thing called life, like all wrong. And I really need to be grateful for the things that I did have in my life at that time. And, and while it wasn't, I could have never talked myself out of jail. Like when I'm in there, it's not like I can say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to try and leave. Like that wasn't going to go well and it wouldn't have been possible. But with you, you've said, you said that, you know, there was times where you tried to talk yourself out of it, like while you were there. And I'm sure even before you went, like, how would you get yourself like out of that, that mindset to be able to continue? Because I think a lot of times what happens is people will talk themselves out of it. Then they start to validate that. And they eventually they do. They talk themselves out of it and then they end up quitting on themselves. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug again, EarthEchoFoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Well, I think part of it is understanding that like we, we evolved to like to have our brain essentially tell us, oh, you can't do that. You should get out of this. But the reality is, is like when you are in the moment, people get more worked up about the idea of something being bad than they do about the actual experience of it, mm. right? So like, I even think of some of the worst days we had out there. We had one day where it was like negative 20, we had a river crossing. So my boots are literally like a block of ice. And it's like, even at that, I couldn't feel my feet. I'm freezing cold, but I'm like, I can have the perspective in that moment to be like, well, at this point in the day, it's not gonna get any colder. I'm not going to lose my feet. I'm not going to lose my toes. So they're going to warm up again eventually. Right. Okay. What's the worst that can happen from here? I don't know. Nothing. Like we're just going to 
it's going to be a tough day. It's going to have moments where I'm like, oh, this sucks. But at the same time, it's like, I think also by putting yourself in that, like in those moments like that, I felt more alive than I ever have, right? Future's like, oh, this is living because now I can come back and talk about those and like tell people those sort of like interesting stories and what I learned from them. And, you know, I think a lot of people, and I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to go out to the Arctic and do it. Like I'm not in the least bit, but I do think we need to find is to the way that you put it, it's like you had this moment that opened up your eyes. Right. Daily modern life by just doing the next impulse that we have. It's usually the easy thing, the comfortable thing. That's not going to open up your eyes. <laughs> right. You're not going to look back and be like, man, I'm so glad that I spent every night watching The Office on Netflix. No one tells a story about that. Right. Right. You do tell a story about going out, doing new, interesting things that you don't necessarily want to impulsively, right? Like your ice baths, like my time in the Arctic, like insert X, Y, Z, these things that are sort of out of this ordinary built, easy environment that we've constructed for ourselves, more or less. We get deep satisfaction out of that. And it teaches us something about ourselves. And, you know... Obviously, there's a barrier to entry, but again, people like the agony of wondering what it's going to be like, I think is a lot worse than actually just doing the thing. Because once you're in it, you're like, you know, to quote that character from The Hangover, but did you die? Right. <laughs> no. But you probably learned something about yourself and you realized it wasn't that bad. Because the reality is, is that the world today is so safe. Like we're having to make this stuff up. <laughs> right? right. In order to get these benefits that we used to be shown naturally by our environments. Right. Yeah. The, the fear of the outcome is greater than the fear itself. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so true. So what are some like daily things that people can do to really, to embrace discomfort? Like what's the biggest bang for the buck that you've seen for just the average person that's listening to this, that can't travel to the Arctic. Maybe they can't, you know, afford to buy, buy an ice bath or whatever, but like, what are some things that you've seen to really help people like go down that path. Yeah. Well, one thing I talk about is I think that sometimes when I talk about like embracing discomfort, I think it gets too narrowly interpreted in terms of like physical stuff, like right. stuff that you see, you know, that, that happens in a gym or like whatever. But it's like, it's so much more than that. I mean, something like hunger, something like how do we spend our attention? For example, boredom. Boredom is really uncomfortable. There's a reason for that. It used to tell us to go do something. But now we have a really, really easy way to kill boredom in our cell phones. Yet boredom is this state that can lead us into more creative, better ideas that can benefit us at work. It can give us time to think differently about something, to analyze our thoughts, even something like solitude. It's like we know being lonely is bad for people, but there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. Like solitude has been used by thinkers forever since we started writing thoughts down to think better and to like gather yourself. It's uncomfortable to be alone. But by doing that, you sort of like get to strip off these deeper layers and understand yourself better. Stuff like hunger. That's like, you look at every single diet, they all tend to work basically the same way. <laughs> and they all have this common uniting thing. That's like, if you're gonna lose weight, that's your goal. Uh, you're probably gonna be a little bit hungry every now and then, right? And like people can't persist against hunger and that I think sabotages them. Stuff like time outside, 
we are we are wired to stay inside because it's a lot safer, it's more predictable, there's no temperature swings, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. But we also know that time outside improves our mental health, our mental and physical health, right? Like on a really deep level. So I think like a daily win to sort of bring a few of those ideas together is that every single day, something I do is that I'll go for a walk outside for like 20 minutes and I will leave my cell phone at home because I, it gives me an opportunity to get outside and it also gives me an opportunity to be bored. It's boring, right? Certain time I'm like, damn, why didn't I bring myself on? Right. But then my mind has to figure out something to do. Boredom is this evolutionary cue that basically says, do something, do something else, right? So my mind is going to like analyze maybe something I'm working on. Sometimes I just think of really strange stuff that's like completely useless and that's fine because on the flip side, sometimes I think of new ways to write something, right? Like my key job is that I'm a writer. I think about I'm able to parse through information better and like get a better hold on it, right? I think in today's day and age with people using digital media, like 11 to 12 hours a day, we don't have these periods where we just let our mind sort of figure things out. We immediately just do the easiest thing, which is just to like go on Instagram, whatever. I mean, look at like a grocery line, right? There's a line at all. Every single person is on their cell phone. No one just sits with their thoughts anymore. We need to do that, I think. Yeah, spot on. And you brought up the walking for 20 minutes. And that's one thing I've started to implement in the last couple of weeks specifically was when I walk my dog, not having my cell phone with me. Because I found myself when I'm walking him, you know, I'm either on a call, I'm checking Instagram, I'm even listening to a podcast, but I'm like, man, I need to spend like just more time just in, in solitude and just being with my thoughts. And you're right. Like that's where the creativity comes. That's where the the thoughts that will help you better yourself come. That's where you're forced to, to really use your, your mind to your advantage when, when you have nothing to do, because it's not like you're going to sit there and just think about nothing. Something will come to you and you'll be able to manage your thoughts better. Another thing I've been doing too, every once in a while is, is driving in the car, like just with silence. Yeah. No that's a great one too. It's so awkward though, right? It's so, it's, that's one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever done when I first did it. So, I mean, for years and years and years, you're used to having either somebody in the car, yeah. radio on, podcast on, audiobook on, and then there's just silence. Oh, you feel like a serial killer or something at first. <laughs> you're like, who else is doing this, you know? But no, I'm with you. Like that's, that was a way that when I was writing the book specifically, I did that a ton because it just really helped me manage a lot of like, how the ideas should unfold just gave me that time every single day. It's like my commute, we were living on the other side of the city. It was like a half hour into the university. So I'd have an hour every single day just to think, right? Which we don't often get anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the other things I wanted to, to talk to you about with, with that subject in mind is, you know, you talked about this, that, that, that people have this belief that in order to embrace discomfort, you have to do something physical. Like I talked about, you know, the cold bath. I mean, there's people that go out on these hikes. There's people who get in the sauna for 15, 20, 30 minutes, and they do these, these crazy exercise things, but it could be as simple, like you said, as just taking a walk without your cell phone or, you know, driving without any sound. I think one of the things too, where that's been that, that a stressor that we once had has now been lifted into ways is, is communication. Mm -hmm. where a lot of people to make connections, to ask somebody out, to network, they were forced to go into a grocery store and introduce themselves. 
or they were forced to, to go to an event and, and talk to people where now everything is online. You can get, you can, you know, get a date within a swipe. You can DM somebody on Instagram. You can Google things. So do you have any advice or maybe something that you do specifically for yourself to like, to like work that communication muscle, that, that social interaction muscle so that you can embrace that part of discomfort so to strengthen your interpersonal relationships? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say like, by the, I mean, I'm a writer for a reason. I sit alone in my office and think, <laughs> right? right? I want to interact with people. Right. That is my general wiring. <laughs> so this one is definitely like a, a tough one for me. And, you know, I think my, my wife and I get along because she's kind of the same way. It's like we get along together, you know, but we're both kind of like we're a little bit antisocial. And I think we've had to like, people will invite us to neighborhood like functions and stuff. And when we first moved in, we're just like, okay, well, like, how do we get out of this? You know? And I think we've both had to be like, okay, we can't say no to forever. We have to just do this thing. And I'll tell you, it's like a work, it's like working out, right? People like, you never regret a workout. You just don't. Like, there's never like these functions that we've started going to. Like, I never regret them. I always have like, good conversations. You know, sometimes you meet people where you're like, well, I don't think I would ever want to hang out with that person, but that's okay. At least you know that, you know, I think also for me, you know, I was in like talking in front of crowds Mm. and then I became a university professor. And so now I'm a classroom of 150 students who are all focused on me. And I think a lot of it too, is just, you just got to get the reps in, right? It's like with your ice bath, You, you, you lasted 10 seconds the first time. Now you're in five minutes, whatever it is, right? It's like, you just have to you just have to do it and it becomes a lot easier and better. But it's like going through that discomfort of the first couple of times and coming out the other side, that's where you like, you learn and grow. Like that really is it, you know? So it's just like knowing that, that if I just do this thing, I'm not going to love it right now, probably, but also it's not going to be as bad as I think. <laughs> and by doing it a few times, like I'm, then it's going to be, it's going to give me this benefit. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the things that I've, that I've done is just, you know, whenever I'm in the grocery store, normally when I'm in the grocery store, I'm like laser focused. I'm like in between like a million things, you know, with me, like always like overbooking myself and I'm like in and out, I know what I need to get and I leave, but now I've tried to make it a point that I go up and I talk to a few people and just spark up a conversation. Cause to me, honestly, is as extroverted as I appear like on podcasts or even on social media, I can be pretty introverted at times. Like yeah. I like my, I like my personal space when I go to conferences, like there's definitely times for me where I'm in my hotel room, like not at some of the uh, seminars and stuff just to relax and just, and use it really as a time to, to recharge. But I know for me, that's been something that I've implemented just because I know that it's uncomfortable for me to, to strike up conversations with random yeah. people at times in person, especially when it's not like staged. And when I mean staged, where like you're there to network where people are expecting you to come up and talk to them. Whereas in a grocery store, there's not a stage set for you to, to be able to talk to people. So I, it's, it's uncomfortable for me. Um, so with that said, like, what are some other stressors that you've come across that, that are good for us that we've seemed to do away with as a society? Yeah. A couple quick ones. I think real quick on this one, but silence. Mm. So when I was in the Arctic, I mean, it was amazing how silent it was. I remember one morning, like I left on the tent, TV, whatever. And I went up and just stood on the tundra and like, I could start to hear my heartbeat. And I don't mean like, it was like, dun, 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 dun. I mean, it was like, don't, 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 like <laughs> so unbelievably loud. Wow. 
because there's no human made noise. And soon I could like hear the blood being pumped into my brain from my carotid artery. Like, like it's crazy. So that got me wondering, like, how has the fact that we tend to live in noise now really changed us? And it turns out that like, it definitely influences this, like, I would say a few things, sort of the speed of life that we have. So we've increased the loudness of the world fourfold humans have. There's only 12 places in the lower 48 states where you can just sit for 15 minutes and not hear any man-made noise. Like we live in noise. And this like essentially seems to stress us out. So you look at a lot of the research and people who live in louder environments tend to be more stressed. They tend to have higher rates of anxiety and depression. And it's like, you know, think about it. It's like, if you want to get really jacked up for like a lift, since I know you're a trainer, it's like, are you doing it in silence? Or are you playing like, you know, Metallica or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So that definitely affects us. And I think that, you know, kind of going back to what you're talking about with, you know, being in the car in silence, like having these moments of silence can really just like chill us out. They give us time to like think and process stuff. So that's something that I've integrated for sure. Like I do a lot of, I'll work out, even just half a workout and just complete silence, you know, I think it's been beneficial. Not having the TV on all the time, like an insane number of Americans just keep the TV on all the freaking time because we can't, we're uncomfortable in silence. We're not watching it. We just need noise, right? But by had by taking that away, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but like, it chills us out over time. And so that's one. And I also think that for a second one, and this one's sort of like a mix of the physical and the spiritual, I would say is, you know, as humans evolve, like you look at all these different cultures, we all tended to have a rite of passage for, for younger people. You know, they were usually were the same basic thing where it's like we had a young person who was at point A in their life and we needed them to get to point B where they'd be more sort of productive and confident, just a better tribe member. Now to get them there, we would often send them out into the wild to do something really challenging. Along the way, they would like struggle, be really hard. They'd come out the other side and they would have learned something about themselves. They would be a new person, right? These could be things like the walkabout that the Aboriginals did. Maasai did a lion hunt. A lot of Native American tribes did. We'd just send people out into the wild for a handful of days. We don't have these, especially among, you know, young people. And I think we've paid for that because they've taken away this thing we used to have that would show us what we were capable of, which was more than we thought, right? So I think that we need to start mimicking these. I met a guy whose name is Marcus Elliott, and he's a sports scientist. He's got a place in uh, Santa Barbara and one in Atlanta. He's, he's got contracts with the NBA and a bunch of other leagues. And um, he does this thing called Masogi that he told me about and I write about in the book. And basically the idea is that once a year, you are going to do something outdoors that is really hard. So he defines it being really hard by saying you should have only a 50% chance of finishing it. It also has to be like kind of a little bit kooky, right? So it's not like, I'm going to sign up for a marathon and I'm going to train for it a bunch. It's like, no, I'm going to like, oh, there's this trail that's like, I don't know, 30 miles if, you know. I don't think I could run that far at all. I think maybe I have a 50% chance of doing it. I'm just going to do it. And I'm not really going to train, right? You're throwing yourself into a true challenge. Because nowadays when we take on stuff, especially physically, we always train for it. We're never going to fail. Like not many people fail marathons every year, 
you know? Right. But by putting ourselves in a position where we actually might fail, a lot of things start moving. You have to dig a lot deeper than we're ever used to. We reach this point where we think we got nothing left, but we managed to go past it. And then we can look back and be like, oh man, I sold myself short there. You know, where else in my life am I selling myself short? So I think doing something like that once a year is, is a good marker to set. It's just like pretty simple. Think of something that you think you truly only have a 50% chance of finishing, right? Like if it's a, if it's a run, it's like, if you've never run 10 miles, okay. You think you could run 15? Yeah, probably. What about 20? Oh, I, I don't know if I could do 20. I really don't know. All right, we'll go find out. Yeah. And with once a year, I'm not too worried about things like overuse injuries and that kind of stuff because it is one time. It's not this regular thing, you know, and the emotional and spiritual benefits you get from that, I think outweigh any aches and pains you have for the week after personally. Yeah. The, what comes from those, the last finishing reps, the, the reps you didn't think you could do or the miles you didn't think you could do like, that's like, that's what changes people is, is yeah. that. Right. Cause it's those last reps when you're like, I'm gonna use the bench press as an example. Cause it's easy. Like, you know, you're, you're not tearing your muscles down nearly as much on the first few easy warm up reps. You're really crushing them on the reps where you're struggling and you're having to, to really like use your mind to really connect with your body to push those last reps up or you have somebody spotting you to help pull the weight up, but you're giving it all you have. Or like the person when you're running, like the first mile, the first few miles tend to be pretty simple. But it's like when your heart rate starts getting up, you start sweating, you start getting tired, you're out of breath, you're past that normal distance that you normally run. And now your brain's starting to take over and like, oh my gosh, I've just reached my threshold. Can I keep going? Like once you dig past that, that's where like true confidence come, that's, comes, that's where resilience comes. That's where you really get to work these, these non-physical muscles that are crucial for human evolution and, and perseverance and, and pain and failure. And just not quitting on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it, pay, exactly. and, it pay, and it pays dividends in, in so many other areas of your life. And what is Dave, like David Goggins? He says, I forget what his, his thing is, but he's like, you know, when you think you're, you're done, you're only like, you know, 40%. You still have another like 40 or 50%. I don't know the exact measure, but I think his point is like, when you think you're at the end, you really have like another, you know, 50% in the tank yeah. still. And I, yeah, and I think that, you know, what he's saying is, is true based on a lot of research. It's like people usually only give about half effort when, when they study this. There's, oh, I forget his name. There's a researcher in South Africa who's been studying this for years, Tim Noakes. And, uh, you know, he basically writes a lot about this central governor theory. That's essentially your brain holds your body back as a defense mechanism. And that used to be good because we wouldn't get ourselves in a tricky spot. You know, like your, your brain wants to protect your body from going way too hard, but this also holds you, holds you back. Right. And you have a lot more than you thought. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the exact thing that, that Goggins was saying, but I do know it's to the idea of what you just said that, that so many people, when they reach their threshold, they think that's it. And that they just, they just quit because they're tired, but really you have so much more in the tank. And, and I, what I've found is when I reach that level and I keep going despite like my mind taking over and being like, oh my gosh, like you're at your threshold. You can't run anymore. Like I, 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 I seem to, to pick up like a second wind because now I've built this new level of confidence, new level of self-esteem within myself. Like, oh, like I'm a lot stronger than I thought. 
Yeah. I'm more in shape than I thought I was. And that allows me to persevere and keep going because now you have the endorphins going and everything else. I want to, I want to go into, to something that I know you talk a lot about too. And that's this, I, this idea of parenting, this idea of like parenting in general. I have a lot, I don't have kids, but a lot of people who listen to my show have kids. And, you know, we used to hear this term helicopter parenting, where essentially it was when parents would just hover over their kids and make sure they weren't doing anything wrong and try to control them as much as possible. And I know you talked about this idea, it's becoming more common now called snow plowing. So could you talk about like what that is in case people who are listening to this don't really understand what that means and how it's different than helicopter parenting and then how it could be detrimental to, to kids? Yeah. So snowplow parenting is essentially like helicopter parenting on steroids, right? Yeah. So these parents, they plow any and all obstacles out of their kid's way. So a good example of this would be the, this is like the extreme example, would be the college admission scandal where parents were just basically paying for their kids to get into to school, right? These hard, hard to get into schools. So the problem with this sort of overprotective parenting where we're making sure our kids are super safe at all times and, you know, don't have any challenges, like that seems good and all, right? But it actually has like long-term consequences because it's, it's from challenges and failing that kids actually learn and they pick up resilience. So the generations that were born after 1990 have the highest rates of mental health problems among young people ever. And the reason for this, they think, is because that's when helicopter parenting started. It started because there was some high-profile kidnappings in 1990. And even though the kidnap, kidnapping rate was not going up, there was just all this media around it. So parents stopped letting their kids go outside and do hard things and go to the, go to the playground alone and play around and, you know, roughhouse, get in fights and stuff. But in doing those sorts of things, kids learn a lot about themselves. Like, I know I like... I learned a ton, like going out in the woods, being a Boy Scout and, you know, getting in fights with like other groups of kids and stuff like that. So when this overprotection starts, kids no longer learn this stuff about themselves. And they realize that a lot of like conflicts are not big deals. They realize they're capable of a lot more stuff. And so now when you put a kid who's been raised in a super protected environment where everything is safe, they're never challenged, they're always right, you get participation trophies, all this stuff. Then you throw them in my classroom or any classroom, right? Or in the real world, in a work setting, and people push back at them, at their ideas, at their performance. All of a sudden, someone's saying, no, the sun doesn't shine out of your ass, actually. I'm going to tell you why. Well, this is really hard for them to take, right? Because when I was a kid, I didn't necessarily think I was the man because I'd been beaten up a couple of times. My mom had been tough on me. I'd gone out in the woods and like learned some stuff, you know, but like now that's not happening anymore. So you start to see when that pushback does occur on someone who is relatively, you know, has never had that, it can become really traumatizing and seems to create issues. And so you see this too with social media where it's like, if you haven't ever had any criticism in your life and then you post a photo of Instagram and some, you know, girl says, hey, you look kind of fat in that. It's just like, oh my God, you know, you can't put that in perspective. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth there. And I think, I think a lot of it, despite how detrimental it is, I think it's, it's well-intentioned. I think yes. parents, they, they love their kids so much. And many times they, they had the very struggles that they're trying to hide their kids from. So they don't want them to experience certain hardships because they remember 
going through that and maybe the impact in those moments that it had for those parents. But I think to your point, people can tend to forget like the long-term benefits that the lessons that they learned through these painful moments gave them, you know, to, to live a more fulfilling and better life. And with that said, so like, what do you think is, I, I know you don't have a magic ball, but like, what would you say are some practical steps that parents could take to, to help mitigate, you know, the style of parenting and help their kids succeed long-term? Yeah, it's funny. I had a friend call me about this recently. He was super high up in the Marines and then he uh, left and started this investment firm that's just like killing it. So he goes, basically he's made a ton of money and they're having a kid and he's like, so dude, so here's the thing. It's like, I don't want my kid to be like this that you're talking about. Like, should I just like move our family into some like really bad neighborhood and, you know, like just send them to this public school where it would get beat up and stuff. I'm like, no, dude, like that's not. Like you, you're working for a reason, right? But I think you do need to realize that like the parents around you are going to be probably too overprotective. I think you need to like let go of the idea that if your kid doesn't have an eye on them every second of the day, something's going to go wrong. So it's like, how can you allow your kid to go out and be a kid in the world and realize that like they're going to be fine? And even think something like, you know, I told him something like, since he has a lot of money to pay for this kind of stuff like an outward bound where it's yeah. like, you're going to send them out in the wild and they're going to have to like, they're going to be cold. They're going to work a lot. They're going to do all this stuff. That's going to teach them something about themselves. I think could do a lot of good in offsetting this. I think, you know, if you're freaked out, buy your kid a cell phone that doesn't have like access to like an old flip phone or something, just like, you know, that way you can contact them, but they're not spending their time on like whatever angry birds or whatever kids play nowadays, you know, things like that, where it's like, let kids go out and be kids. If it's freaking you out, figure out a way to use technology in a smart way to sort of keep track and track of them. But like, don't, you know, let them, let them fail. Like you don't have to step in every time something goes wrong. Like just let them figure it out on their own. People learn from trying and kids are being, not being allowed to try as often as they once were. Yeah. And you see that a lot with sports, right? Yeah. I think you see the, the helicopter and, and snowplow parenting, I think tends to ha can tend to happen in sports where if a kid doesn't make a team because they just weren't good enough, now the parents are going after the coaches and blaming the school system or whatever. And, and in reality, like it, it's not helping their kid because now they're, I, I think, and again, I'm not a parent, but I'm just observing that I would think that if a kid doesn't make a team, and they make it, they end up making it because their parent like chewed the coach out or w threatened to withdraw funding or whatever, that that kid is going to feel less than regardless. Cause they're going to say, well, I mean, just subconsciously, they're going to know that they didn't really make the team right. because of them. They made the team because of their parent. And then if that gets done enough, now this kid is going to get to be 21, 22, 23 years old, and they're going to be faced with life challenges. And they're going to realize that their parents aren't going to always be there to take care of their problems. And now they're forced to, to, to deal with the problems. And you see this a lot where now parents are like, I don't know why my kid's like abusing drugs. And, yeah. and I, what, what I think happens is when these parents take care of their kids' problems for so long, and then all of a sudden they think that that's like helping to prepare them for the world, that they're able to not have any problems as they enter life after college, that when they're faced with problems, their inability to deal with it forces them 
to use alcohol, forces them to use drugs, forces them to gamble, forces them to do whatever to numb that pain. Yeah. Right? Because they find a way to, yeah. to deal with that that is often not productive. Yes. Right. Exactly. Cool. I'm glad we touched on that because that was something that I think a lot of people need to hear because it's pretty common now. You're seeing they, people just, they don't want their kids to experience hardship. And I, like I said, I think it's well-intentioned and and rightfully so in a way, but I think the the long-term side effects to that are, are more negative than positive. And I want to shift gears. And as we like kind of like wrap up the our conversation, I want to talk about something that was really eye-opening to me. I mean, I, I knew the benefits of nature, but I didn't realize how beneficial nature like really, really was. So touch on that if you could of like w- like why nature is so powerful. And I think there's like different levels, I think that you talk about and, yeah, yeah. and how people can implement it. Yeah. So, I mean, I started thinking about this because when I was in, when I was up in the Arctic, because of how dangerous it was and how much like hard work and how freezing cold and there's grizzly bears and there's all this stuff, you'd think that I'd be totally like on edge, right? Just like kind of a mess of stress. But the reality was the complete opposite. Like I was the most chilled out and like at peace I've ever been in my life. And so I kind of wondered what was going on there. When I got back, I started researching you know, the benefits of nature on for the brain. And I met a uh, researcher in Boston who is looking into how nature impacts all these different markers of human health. And they basically, her and a handful of other researchers, I basically identified what they call a nature pyramid. And it basically tells us it's like the food pyramid, except instead of eating, you know, this many grains and so much meat, tells you how much time you should spend in what type of nature. So at the bottom is 20 minutes, three times a week in the kind of nature that you can find like in a city park. This is like tame nature, right? And this is associated with drops in stress, increased focus, like it has all these nice little benefits, right? Then at the next level, five hours a month in more sort of country nature. So this is kind of like a state park, you know, it's like, definitely wilder than city nature but it's not like you're like way off the grid you know it's kind of that like middle ground and spending that amount of time there is associated with a lot less depression and increases in happiness and then at the very top there's something called the three-day effect and it basically says that three days every year you should spend in backcountry nature like wild stuff you know the places where roads don't go and that's associated with changes your uh, brain waves to alpha waves. You know, in, in the modern world, we're always writing these beta waves, which are these like frenetic go, 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 whatever waves, and they're associated with burnout. But alpha waves are the same waves that are found in experienced meditators. So they're like, you know, you're super calm, you're at peace, you're like starting to see the world differently, time feels like it's slowing down, you just feel more present, aware. It's like, ah, uh, you know, it's like kind of like you feel super zen. And that effect seems to last at least two, three weeks a month. So that provides sort of this prescription about how we should think about interacting with nature because it does have these like insane brain benefits. But the problem is that we spend like 95% of our time indoors now. Like we just don't go outside that often. And I think we're really missing something. And I think that is influencing why we see these crazy high rates of mental health problems. You know, it's, it's never one silver bullet. It's like we have changed our environments so much that we just don't know all the repercussions of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we don't. And 
I think what's happened too is that people have just gotten used to it and it becomes like, this is people's new normal yep. and an environment creates a false sense of normalcy sometimes. And, and in reality, it, it might seem normal, but as far as like in the context of human evolution, it's not normal to spend most of your time inside. It's not normal for kids to be on their, on phones when they're teenagers and not interacting with, with friends or or playing outside or doing things that are proactive for their brain. I mean, it doesn't have to be something physical, but whatever like works for them. And, and that's why I think we're seeing, you know, so many people that are struggling with, with their mental health, with their physical health, with just progressing in life. It's because of our inability to try and our inability at times to, to embrace discomfort, even when those moments of discomfort appear to be quote unquote dangerous, but in reality, are safe. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, so dude, man, I've, I've loved chatting with you and I think people are going to really get a lot out of our conversation and, and it's going to, and it's going to be a, I, hopefully enlightening and eye opening for people to really start to, to take some, some action in their life and not, you know, doing anything drastic. Right. But maybe like going out for, for a hike a few times a week now, or, you know, spending time outdoors with their kids or, or driving without sound or, you know, meditating or whatever the case may be. So I thank you a lot for, for joining us. Where can people find out more about you if they want to grab your book, if they want to connect with you on social media and that sort of thing? Yeah. So the book is called The Comfort Crisis and it is available pretty much anywhere, Amazon, bookstores, whatever. And my website is eastermichael.com. And then I'm on Instagram at Michael underscore Easter. And I appreciate you having me on, man. That's super fun. Yeah, this is awesome. And for those listening, this was an awesome conversation and thoroughly enjoyed chatting it up with Michael. But what I want you to do is to share takeaways. We love hearing your feedback. So whether it was something that he said about his story in the Arctic, it could have been something he talked about with sobriety and recovery. It could have been something about just this, this idea that as humans, we've gotten too comfortable or how to embrace discomfort, whatever it was. Tag Michael, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.